This is not real. This is not real. This is not real. This isn't happening. Kate, uh, tell me this isn't really happening. I hear there's uh, something you don't like the looks of. We discovered a very large comet. Oh, good for you. It's headed directly towards Earth. This comet is what we call a planet killer. At this exact moment, I say we sit tight and assess. Sit tight and assess? Sit tight. And then assess. The sit tight part comes first, then you gotta digest it. That's the assessment period. This is the worst news in the history of humanity. He just blew us off. What are we gonna do? We have to release the information. So we just leak it. Our guests today have made a pretty big discovery in space. How big is this thing going? Like, can it destroy my ex-wife's house? Is that possible? <laughs> There's a 100% chance that we're all going to die! Okay. Hey. Hey. Well, the handsome astronomer can come back anytime, but the yelling lady, mm, not so much. Not so much. We're going to get the news out there one way or another. It's real and it's coming. FBI! Jesus Christ, you could have just called me. This comet contains $30 trillion worth of material. What do trillions of dollars matter if we're all going to die? Oh, no, what if we're rich? That would be oh. terrible. You guys discovered a comet? I have a tattoo of a shooting star on my back. Oh, that, that's that's terrific. <laughs> this could be a complete disaster. This is already a disaster. <laughs> you know that girl from Live TV said we're all gonna die? No. Yo, bro! the FBI put that bag over your head. They don't do that, the CIA does, but I made them do it. You know, I had a feeling. It's a good feeling, because that is what I did, and it was very funny and cool. Hello, and welcome, believe it or not, to the same old Science for Policy podcast. My name's Toby, and today I'm joined by Chloe Hill, who is the policy manager for the European Geosciences Union, a non-profit organization with about 18,000 individual scientists as members. She is a governing board member also at Euroscience, another association of individual scientists, which is best known for organizing the annual ESOF conference. She has a background in environmental science and governance, and in her spare time, I don't know, she probably just watches Netflix. So, uh, <laughs> Chloe, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Toby. Thanks so much for having me. Hi. So for all the confused listeners who thought they downloaded just another predictable interview with some academic or science advisor or something, and instead they just got two minutes of a trailer for a nine-month-old sci-fi movie, perhaps you could explain what on earth is going on. Absolutely. Um, so I, I should actually start by saying I am not a film critic. Um, <laughs> and I know there's been other film critics who have reviewed this, and this is not what we're going to be talking about today. Um, but essentially, as part of my role with the European Geosciences Union, or EGU for short, I do a monthly blog post. And this blog post lets me dive into whatever topics I think are particularly fascinating at the time. Um, and in January earlier this year, I watched the film Don't Look Up. Yeah, so before we launch too far into it, I'm just going to stop you there and say, uh, for the sake of good manners, 
If you've not yet seen the blockbuster Netflix film, Don't Look Up, and you think you might like to see it, I think we're probably going to pretty much spoil every part of it. So you might want to stop this episode right here and go away and watch the film and then come back to us when you've finished. Okay, now having said that and lost half our audience probably, (laughs) perhaps Chloe, you can give the rest of us an outline of what happens in this film. So the plot essentially follows these two scientists, um, two astronomers, Um, And the very start of the film, they find this comet, which is terribly exciting for them as astronomers. But they do some calculations and realise that it's going to hit the Earth in six months. And they calculate this with a 99.78% certainty. Um, So this is sort of how the film starts off in the first five minutes. It's very shocking. Um, And the rest of the film follows these two scientists going to talk to policymakers, talking to the media, talking to the public, um, trying to warn them and trying to encourage them to take action somehow to prevent this collision from happening. Because as they discuss in the film, it is an Earth destroyer. It's such a big comet that when it does hit the Earth, it's going to destroy all of humanity. Um, And the whole aim of the film is sort of revolves around them trying to communicate this and the struggles they have with doing that. And the director's come out and said it's really an allegory for climate change. Um, And in some respects, he's done that quite well. And in some respects, it has been criticised for not quite hitting the mark. And we can talk about that later on as well. Yeah, sounds good. And if we want to get into a really big spoiler, um, at the very end of the film, they are unsuccessful. The world is in fact destroyed. It is in fact destroyed. Yeah, yeah. So we can talk about that too. Always a cheery topic for a Monday morning. Um, What's your interest in this film? What's your angle here? Yeah, as someone who works on the science policy interface and specifically with scientists helping them to connect more with policymakers, I watched it with a, a bit of a different view from everyone else. So whereas a lot of the critics who have watched the film have either critiqued the acting or the filmmaking or the directing or things like that in general, I was looking at how the scientists were acting in the film and I found that really interesting because a lot of the times, um, particularly when we're talking to scientists about how they should interact with policymakers and what they should be doing, um, we're giving them very uh, overarching examples or saying you really should do this and this and this, but giving them an actual example with a storyline we don't get that very often. And when we do critique people with they're saying, oh, well, this, this particular scientist did this and he shared this information in this way or she did this in this way and it was good or bad for this and this reason, um, actually critiquing a film in this way allows me to really dive in without offending anyone. Okay. So it's sort of the best of both worlds. Yeah, so you can use the fiction to, as it were, critique people without actually attacking specific people. Yeah. I, I had a little think, and I can't immediately come up with any other films that are specifically about science advice, except perhaps Doctor Strangelove, and that's a, a kind of a different piece. So do you think that Don't Look Up does a decent job of depicting the realities of science advice and, and, and how scientists interact with politics? I think so. I think it's obviously very exaggerated, but uh, it's a film and it has Meryl Streep in it and it has, you know, Leonardo <laughs> DiCaprio and all these fantastic actors. So, of course, it is. And it's meant to have this sort of dark humor aspect to it. So, it is very exaggerated. Um, but before I even wrote my blog post, I read a couple of articles from scientists, climate scientists who came out, um, had some positive things to say about it because, as climate scientists, they themselves feel very frustrated the lack of action on climate change and things like that. And I think they they saw themselves in the position of these two astronomers trying to communicate with policymakers and the public and the press. Um, 
But they really took it as a the policymakers, the press and the public are in the wrong, but they didn't come at it from a self-critical perspective. So that's something I wanted to push back on a little bit. And I think when you do watch the film, it's very clear who the villains are. The villains are very clearly the self-indulgent policymakers or the media who is just obsessed with views and things like that. And the, the scientists are meant to come across as the good guys, but uh, I think it's good to have some self-reflection as well. Yeah, that, I think it's it's clear that one of the main messages you come away from the film with is that the scientists, I mean, early on in the story, there's two scientists go to meet the president who's Meryl Streep, played by Meryl Streep. And so she's basically this Trump-style president who doesn't take it seriously for a long time. And then when she does, she cherry-picks the advice she wants to hear. And then she makes the wrong call and then it all goes downhill, as we mentioned. <laughs> Spoiler alert, very dramatically downhill at the end. When you look at how the scientists and the policymakers interact, Indeed, the policymakers, without exception, do not come off well, to put it mildly, and the scientists get quite a sympathetic portrayal. And so I guess I had some of the same thoughts as you. That, like, if your science communication is being ineffective, then, you know, there's only so far you can go in laying all the blame on your stupid, facile, incompetent audience. There must be some stuff that you, the science advisor, could also be doing better to have more influence. Yeah, so actually when I was watching it, I I reflected a lot on things that I, I've read recently. So I think you've already had, for example, you've had Lena Top on recently and Florian and they've talked about the science for policy um, competence framework and the skills that scientists can develop there. And when I was watching the film, I was sort of had that in the back of my mind. And this is exactly what the scientists didn't do. And it's in the film, it's not necessarily their fault. You know, they've had this shocking news that the world was going to be destroyed in six months' time. They're basically functioning on no sleep. They get flown to the White House and then they have to wait in the White House for hours and hours and hours on end until the president is willing to see them. And, you know, you could look at this and say maybe that's a bit realistic. Policymakers are very, very busy people and, you know, sometimes you have to wait to see them. You have to have a very specific appointment time. The appointment's often quite short. Um, And often... Scientists have to be very flexible in that regard. Um, And this is just an extreme example of that. But then, of course, they go into the the Oval Office and the president is there, Meryl Streep's there, and her advisors are there. And they say, "Okay, we have 20 minutes. Let's go. Tell us what's happening. Um, And 20 minutes, honestly, is actually quite generous. Yeah, that was Uh, also my thought. I was brought up watching The West Wing. A 20-minute meeting with the president (laughs) seems incredible. Um, So good for them. They don't spend, they they actually cut the meeting short, which again is quite realistic. Um, They cut the meeting short because as soon as they get in the room, they start explaining it from a scientist's perspective. They start going over the methods they use and using very scientific jargon to explain what's happening. And they don't explain the context or the relevance of that straight away. They start by doing a big overview of the science and Meryl Streep jumps in and immediately she's like, no, I don't get this. I don't understand. And that for me really jumped out as a really good demonstration of how these two different communities communicate on different levels. And so in the next sort of few minutes when they're still sitting in the Oval Office, the two scientists try and recover a little bit and they try and go into what the impact would actually mean. Um, but by then, almost the, the damage is done in terms of um, the perspectives of the policymakers they're talking to. Um, and this really frustrates the scientists, particularly the younger scientists, the early career scientists who's still doing her PhD. She gets frustrated and she sort of starts raising her voice. And this is obviously a big no-no as well. And it ends up just being there's frustration on both sides. And I think that's also very common. So I think it, the, the film does this, this representation quite well, obviously, in an extreme way. 
Um, but if you're going in as a scientist and you're watching this, say, okay, what could they have done to frame their message better? How could they have spoken to the president and her advisors in a way that really resonates with them, in a way that frames the information uh, in a light where they will want to hear it and want to act because acting is really important? And this is an extreme scenario where, of course, maybe the scientist is thinking, of course, they want to save the planet. But from the Meryl Streep's president, who, as he says, Trump-like president, very, very focused on being popular. So maybe they could have framed it in that way. You know, this would be a very popular um, action to take. The public would really support you if you prevented this this comet from hitting the yeah. Earth. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> Seems like a no-brainer already. Yeah. So this is sort of when I was watching what I was thinking about. Yeah, there's a point in that meeting when they're discussing the the prognosis and the science advisors are asked, okay, what's the likelihood of this happening? And they start off saying 100%, then they admit it's actually, what, 99.7% that we're all going to die. So then there's this debate about whether that actually means it's certain and blah, blah. And I don't know, it struck me, the suggestion that if you walk into a room full of politicians saying, uh, science says we're all going to die, please fix this problem. It seems quite realistic that you will not have much impact. You're kind of framing it wrong. Yes. Yeah. Policymakers are very focused on solutions. They're very solution oriented, whereas scientists often get caught up in the problems. They're looking at the problems there. They're trying to work out what the problems are. And then as soon as you ask for a solution, it's very hard to give. Um, and this is also it speaks to the theme of, you know, policy advice versus science advice and all of these sorts of things. But actually coming up with a solution is often hard to do. And in this particular scenario, they did have a solution, which I think is really interesting. And that wasn't initially brought up. You know, that wasn't the first sentence out of their mouth. It sort of came that they had this solution where they were basically going to nuke the comet out of the air and save the planet that way. Um, And I think, you know, this is something that if you are a scientist and you're going to go talk to the president of the United States, you should uh, think about beforehand. What are the solutions that you can bring? Because that's what they want to hear. That's how you speak and resonate with them. Yes. I mean, that's excellent advice. Although I have to say, in defense of the scientists in the film, perhaps, you do get the impression they're not really comfortable in the in the, the spotlight they've been thrust into, at least the more senior of the two. So um, DiCaprio's character, he doesn't seem like he ever wanted science advice to be his job. Yeah, this was actually a really interesting point as well. Um, at one point in the film, his character, Leonardo DiCaprio's character, actually said, this isn't my job. My job isn't to talk to people like this. My job is to do the science. And I think that resonates also with a lot of a lot of scientists. They want to stay in the lab or they want to stay with the science and they don't necessarily feel the need to communicate it. And I think in a lot of cases, actually, this is okay. It's not every scientist has to be an amazing communicator. Obviously, it's very, very focused on these two scientists. And I think for the sake of the film, that makes a lot of sense. But in reality, that's that's not how it works. You know, scientists, it's very, very important for them to have this community they can fall back on. And they were working with the universities. You know, all universities, all institutions, they have these outreach offices or they have press and, me- press and media team. They have these people that can help them communicate this so that they aren't taken advantage of it. So they can use these people to help make sure that their messages are heard um, and not misinterpreted and all of these sorts of things. Um, I think if this had happened in the film, it wouldn't have been as engaging. No, so sure. They didn't involve all these external characters. But I think this is a, a risk that scientists often do contend with as well, you know. Um, and we did see this during COVID even. There were scientists, for example, Fauci, who obviously wanted to, to voice his opinion more strongly 
uh, or, or correct some of the science that was was being misinterpreted by the government at the time in the US. Um, and he had to make that decision where if he was going to stand up strongly and say, no, nope, I'm not doing this, or if he was going to stay in the room. Um, and that's, that's you know, it, it's a big decision to make. So I think that was actually quite represented, that was represented quite well in the film. I think it was also interesting that they had the early career scientists. So um, Diabitsky, um, she was like the younger, the younger scientist, the, the PhD student who initially spotted the comment. Um, she had this more visceral reaction. Um, and I think this also represents, you know, a lot of scientists as well. And if we're looking at a, a, an exact representation in the real world, it's not Greta Thunberg because Greta Thunberg is not a scientist, but this sort of like, what are you doing? We're all going to die. There's a 100% chance we're going to die. What are we doing? Um, and I think a lot of people can can watch this and resonate that with that as well. Yeah, they did a good job, I thought, with with spotlighting that dilemma whether you'd rather be in the room and so like constrained by the the realpolitik or outside the room and much freer but with much less influence and then they go on to highlight that again because there's a plot line with Leonardo DiCaprio's character the the senior scientist who eventually accepts this institutional role as, as a science advisor to the president who he still hates by the way um, and then you see him gradually weaken his position as time goes by and I think it's an open question based on the film whether he's being like cynically co-opted by the government, like becoming a mouthpiece for the government, or whether he deliberately compromises his values so that he can stay in the president's favour, so that he can try and have some influence on this solution that they decide to try in the end. I think in this case as well, because it was, you know, literally the end of the world, um, there's also that psychological aspect of you not wanting to believe it, maybe. Even as a scientist, you know, we all have our own biases. We all want to believe that the world isn't going to end in six months. And so as a psychological aspect for that character, um, I think that might have also played into it. If we're really analysing the situation, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess you're right. And we're kind of pushed a bit further towards believing that because he does later recant. Um, I mean, you said this is about this sci-fi scenario where the world's about to end, but the director of the film actually made it very clear that it, it's not a fantasy. It's supposed to be a, a pretty transparent, I suppose, allegory to climate change. And the reactions of the people in the film are meant to show how silly our actual current reactions to this existential threat really are. The marketing blurb that Netflix put out that I saw had the headline, uh, based on a true story that hasn't happened yet. Yeah, I think um, in some in some regards, again, for the sake of the movie, because the movie has to be like a two-hour length feature film, um, it made a lot of sense to make it about a comet because there's all of you can ignore all of the complications around that, right? So climate change is an incredibly um, complicated issue, and it's also there was a lot of criticism with this being an allegory for climate change because. The comet had nothing to do with anything that came before it. It wasn't caused by humans. It wasn't caused by our own actions. It's not something that the whole of humanity has to work together to change. Whereas climate change, you know, we have to change systems. And that doesn't just involve scientists or doesn't just involve one huge entrepreneur who comes up with this brilliant solution. It doesn't involve just policymakers, but policies that are created, the decisions that are made are going to affect real people um, all over the world. And it's also something that happens on a global scale. So I think obviously comet, a comet hitting the earth also happens on a global scale. But because it was a film, of course, it was just the US who was reacting. Yeah, yeah <laughs> um, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
and this obviously isn't the case. Part of the challenge of climate change is the fact that we do have to work internationally. We do have to work across borders. We do have to come up with these international agreements and use international science advice as well. Um, and I think that's one aspect, obviously, the movie couldn't address. And again, you know, I think we did at one point hear a bit about what India was planning on doing at some point. Yeah. That was a one line sort of <laughs> dropped in the film. Yeah. Um, but it was very US focused. And I think in terms of the science advice as well, climate change, things things like climate change, also biodiversity, these are the the issues that you need a lot of different types of scientists involved. You can't just have two scientists who are working in the same field to give you information. So you need scientists to work together across different disciplines. And that is a huge challenge in itself. Yeah, maybe it's worth saying, if it's not clear uh, anyway, that we're not, I mean, speaking for myself, I'm certainly not suggesting this would have been a better movie if they'd incorporated all these elements that we as kind of science for policy geeks are now, are now talking about. <laughs> I mean, I'm happy to wait for the sequel that's focused on science diplomacy and interdisciplinary working groups and the role of the humanities. <laughs> I mean, well, but I mean, joking aside, there was that moment when the scientists had failed to persuade the president and then they'd had this disastrous attempt to get on primetime TV and that had also failed. And so they turned to TikTok or Schmicktok or whatever they called it to get their <laughs> message out directly to the public. And and then the result was there was chaos, right? There was yeah. riots. Yeah. And I do remember thinking, you know, these two hard scientists could have seen that coming. They could really have done with some social science input to understand how people <laughs> how people are. This is this is true. I mean, it does again. The film simplified everything a lot, but it had the uh, consequences as well. And I think that was another really interesting aspect of the film, the fact that you really had these, again, it was very, it was a politicised issue. And somehow when we look at climate change, it's also a politicised issue. And quite often as scientists, we're very good at talking to each other. We're very good at talking to people who are already on board, who already have a good understanding of what the issues are, who are already working and trying to find these solutions. But then going outside of that bubble, reaching out to people who are maybe on the other side of the issues or um, who don't particularly want to act or who don't understand, reaching these people who aren't within our own scientific bubble is very challenging. Um, and when you're thinking about that politically, that's also the case. You know, we want to speak to people who have similar values to us. And Joint Research Centre has a really great report on the impact that values have on policymaking and decision-making. Um, and I think being able to speak not necessarily just about facts, but also being able to speak to people's emotions is, is really key. So in, in the film, one example of this is they had this big concert with Ariana Grande's character, who basically is Ariana, it's Ariana Grande. Grande. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She has a different name in the film, but she's basically Ariana Grande. And they have this big concert and tell people just, just look up and they do a big song and literally a big song and dance about it. Um, but the people that they're talking to are the people who are already on board with them. They're not reaching people who are outside, who are who are in the don't look up crowd. Um, and on the other side, the don't look up crowd is doing the same thing as well. So it is a it becomes this politicised issue that people aren't trying to talk to each other about or not trying to say, hey, what are your values behind that sort of thought process and how can I overcome them? Um, yeah. So that was an interesting aspect of the film that wasn't really, it was touched upon, but they didn't dive into it. It wasn't explored properly, yeah. I'd, but I mean, taking the film as it presents itself, they maybe didn't, actually have that much of a platform to to explore that because i mean like you pointed out earlier with climate change everyone can make a contribution it's a big 
society-wide change that we need. Whereas with the Armageddon asteroid, it's so urgent, so short-term that it kind of doesn't really matter what the public think as long as the policymakers, you know, have a grip on things. Yeah. It's also the other thing is that obviously a comet hitting the Earth is very binary. Either it hits or it doesn't hit. But climate change, there's not really a yes, we've done it or a no, we completely failed aspect. It's okay. Where where do we stop? You know, can we keep it under two degrees? Can we keep it under 2.5 degrees? Even if we do miss the targets, there's still things we can do. Um, and so this sort of overarching, hard to put a pinpoint on whether we're successful or not, creates its own challenges as well when we're communicating. Yeah, that's an interesting point that I, I hadn't really thought about. With climate change, I mean, there might be certain tipping points or certain distinct consequences of, of achieving or not achieving a particular aim. But as you say, it's broadly a continuum. We have degrees of success or failure. Um, but then in the debate about climate change, there are these attempts then to make it more binary to say, okay, the number that really matters is 2%, sorry, two degrees or, or two and a half. These are like arbitrary. I mean, I'm not a climate scientist, but I think they're fairly arbitrary but nonetheless useful or, or thought to be useful to motivate us to, to pull towards, you know, and to measure if we're succeeding or not. Exactly. And I think, yeah, that is, it's just one of the challenges that, that we face. And I think a lot of the time when we're talking about reaching the 1.5 target, people get very um, depressed about the fact that we might not meet it or it's sort of likely that we're not going to meet the 1.5 target and what that means. And then sort of saying, yes, but there's still reason to act, you know, <laughs> it's a continuum of how bad things will be so yeah i guess that is the downside of extracting a concrete target from a continuum that people might be as you say demotivated if they if they perceive that we've missed the target yeah hmm. there's another big area of the film that we haven't really explored yet basically what happens in the second half is that elon musk shows up i mean he's not elon musk but he he clearly is like like ariana grande right <laughs> and he presents what turns out to be ultimately a mad alternative to blowing up the comet, which he says will allow them to mine the precious metals in it to make more mobile phones. That's how it's presented. And save the world in the meantime. It's interesting that the science advisors, especially DiCaprio's character, go along with this plan for a while. And then when they change their minds, their, their credibility has kind of been torpedoed. But I think something that also I would have hoped would have happened in, in, in real life is that, again, with the, the stronger scientific community coming out against this idea, um, saying, look, we can see this isn't backed by science. And it wouldn't have just been Mindy saying yes or no. It would have been a whole community of scientists saying yes or no. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, this is Hollywood. So you have like the entire science community and all its diversity embodied in these two astronomers. And the same on the political side, actually, as we've discussed. And really, the film is quite clear about how it judges those two communities. There's no, there's no subtlety about it, I don't think. It paints the scientists as honest and well-meaning, but basically small fish in the big shark tank. And it paints the politicians as, as greedy and stupid, uh, because first they don't care about the science, and then later on when they do, they fall for this apparently win-win solution, which is obviously a catastrophe. But I, I'm not completely convinced this is a fair portrayal. I mean, what what they're trying to point to, I suppose, is that politicians do have many other factors to consider other than just the science, right? Other constituencies to satisfy. Um, and then these apparently win-win policy solutions that genuinely do please 
many different constituencies or, or appear to can be super attractive. And I kind of feel like in their shoes, I might have made the same call. Yeah, again, this is where scientists do have to learn to speak up because I think obviously we do, we say over and over and over again, it's good to have evidence-informed policymaking, but evidence doesn't make the policy. There's so many different aspects that policymakers have to consider with every single different policy. But in this particular case, you would have hoped that scientists would have spoken up a little bit louder because it isn't just, you know, obviously the way this Elon Musk character, Peter Ishbel was his name. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> um, I spoke up. He was like, this is going to be a win, win, win. We know we're going to get money from the comet. It's not going to hit the earth. We're going to fix everything. Um, but I think scientists can speak up and say, look, if we're looking at it from a, a risk perspective, like it could be a, a win-win, but the chance that it's not is just too high. And this is what happens if it doesn't work out. I think the narrative that it would be a win-win, that everyone would have jobs and everyone would be rich, really helped the public to get on board with the solution that didn't work. Um, but if the scientists had actually also spoken to the public in a lot of different outlets and actually worked together, again, as a scientific community and convinced the public otherwise saying, look, this is what happens if it doesn't work out and communicating not just in a scientific way, but in a way that a lot of different sectors of the public could understand, it, it might have gone differently. Yeah. Uh, this this is going to sound like a pretty silly, well, this is a pretty silly uh, comment, but I'll make it anyway. I said at the start, this is a film about science advice, but I think one thing that's conspicuous, actually, by its absence, is some science advisors. <laughs> I mean, you've got these two jobbing astronomers who are sent to the Oval Office on day zero of their policy advising careers. Um, and they're experts in their field, but they're not experts very clearly in the science policy interface. And there's no one around to do that job, basically, in the whole film. There's no intermediaries. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. And this is something that I, I obviously, I know in part of the movie, Peter Ishwell, this Elon Musk character basically said, oh, no, he, he used his scientists. They've got their scientists to look into it. Um, but again, if it's not peer reviewed science, then any, no one knows to check that. Um, it's, a, it's a big issue. And I think something else that was distinctly missing, not, I mean, this is obviously from my perspective as someone who's working within a scientific organisation, um, but the role that these scientific organisations can potentially play. Um, and because I was watching this movie from my own perspective and with my own biases, I was thinking about this during the movie and saying, well, you know, if I was working in this situation, I was working with the European Geosciences Union, what would we be doing? in this point in time? And what would other organisations like Euroscience be doing? What could we be doing? Um, and I think mobilising the community is something that we can do. So obviously scientists, you know, they work within their own institutions, they work within their own organisations, um, and we are just a membership-based organisation. But that gives us the power to bring a lot of different scientists together. So EGU, for example, we have 22 different scientific divisions and we have one sort of overarching meeting every year where they all come together and they can all talk to each other and they can all work on different things together. And this can be very challenging. We talk a lot about how we need um, a more integrated approach or more multidisciplinary approach when we're addressing problems like climate change, like biodiversity, um, but actually getting scientists together to work across different institutions like this is a challenge and it's something that EGU is trying to work on. Um, and this is something that I would like to do better and would like to do more because it is a challenge but I think it's one way it's one way of the scientific community coming together and becoming stronger um, and it's another way of, of 
policymakers actually getting the information they need from a diverse array of scientific disciplines. Yeah, very good. Um, should this film make science advisors cheer or despair? I think they should cheer. <laughs> so my opinion watching it, I, it's always good to be, to, to be critiqued. Um, and I think the fact that, firstly, what I think was really great, is that a filmmaker and actors in Hollywood thought this movie was a good idea. I think quite often scientists work really, really hard in reaching out to the public. They go talk at schools and they go to, to public presentations and things like that. They try and do citizens, like get citizens to get involved in citizen science. And this was actually regular citizens, okay, citizens in Hollywood, um, but regular citizens actually reaching out to scientists in a way to show them like, yes, we, we see your job. This is what we think your job is. Um, and this is what the challenges of your job is. And, and they weren't too far off, actually. And the fact that they're seeing that um, and they're then publicising that to a much wider audience than scientists usually reach is fantastic. Um, and I think scientists should jump on that. And I think it's uh, also a really good tool for scientists and policymakers and everyone involved in the science advisory process to reflect on what they're doing, to see, to see bad examples of what they're doing, um, because sometimes when you see bad examples in real life, it's a little bit too jarring. But seeing them <laughs> on the screen, yes, seeing them on the screen can be a bit easier to digest. So, yeah, yeah, this is the joy of science fiction or any fiction, I guess. So then, last question: taking taking the world and the policymakers as they're presented in the film, do you think with better science advice they could have saved the planet? Oh, that is the question. If it was just those two scientists. Maybe not. But if they actually engaged in better science advice and involved their entire scientific community, I think they would have had a better chance if they had thought about how they could have presented their evidence more effectively at the very beginning when they were hanging out in the White House for hours and hours and hours. And yeah. hours and <laughs> yeah. Maybe. Um, but, of course, you know, the world didn't end just because of the scientists. There was obviously a lot of roles there as well. And I think that's also when you're watching the film, even if you're watching it from a critical eye and you're critiquing yourself as a scientist or yourself as someone who works on the science policy interface or as a science advisor, it's important to remember that there's lots of different actors. And if something catastrophic happens, it's not just your fault. Uh, I think that might be the most reassuring thing I've heard in a long time. So, uh, dear listener, if you would like to watch Don't Look Up and we haven't sufficiently ruined it for you, you will find it on Netflix. It's directed by Adam McKay and written by Adam McKay and David Sirota. And it has a pretty stellar cast and Ariana Grande's in it too. <laughs> Meanwhile, back on planet Earth, Chloe Hill, thanks for the fun conversation. You say you're not a film critic. Uh, and I say in that case, maybe you've missed your vocation or at least <laughs> you have a backup career plan if the gig at the EGU doesn't work out. Thank you very much indeed. It's been great. Thanks very much, Toby. The Science for Policy podcast is created by Sapea. It's produced by me, Toby Wardman, with additional research and support from Agnieszka Pietruchuk. Sapea is a consortium of Europe's academy networks representing more than 100 academies, young academies and learning societies from more than 40 countries across Europe.
We're part of the European Commission's scientific advice mechanism, and as such, we're funded by the European Union. Having said that, the opinions you hear on this podcast are those of the guests, and sometimes mine, but certainly not the views of the European Commission. This music is composed by Carlo Alfredo Piatti and performed by Elisaveta Suschenko. And this last bit is particularly good. <laughs>